Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Moving on to a new chapter in our book study. Uh, this year, for your guests, we're studying through the book of 2 Corinthians together. And we'll look at the first three verses of a next section of Scripture that covers 11 verses. This morning. What we want to learn from these 11 verses, of which we're going to consider the first three in chapter 3, is this, that a ministry that wants to or desires to maintain integrity must be trustworthy. A ministry that desires to maintain ministry integrity must be trustworthy. Remember last week, we talked about those who peddle the word of God, peddle the gospel of God. The Greek word there it means they're hucksters, right? They're what Paul calls false teachers in the New Testament. Those who exist among the people of God and those who also visit the people of God from afar who seek to undo the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ within the church and its influence in the gospel outside the church. These were untrustworthy people that sought to bring fear, to bring unrest and uncertainty into the body of Christ in the progress of the gospel. Have you been asked recently, so who do you trust in this whole virus thing? Or who can you trust in this whole virus thing? I get asked that probably because of my position a little bit more than you do during the course of the week, but I'm sure all of us have been asked that question, who do you trust? And this is what I tell them. I trust the people who I know. I trust the people that I've developed deep and wide personal relationships with. And in my existence, those are the people who know Jesus Christ, who work in the medical field, that really know how to go by whatsoever things are true in relationship to this virus. And I get the most puzzling looks when I give that answer, but it gives me an opportunity to progress then into a gospel conversation. I trust the people who I know Jesus is influenced in relationship to this and I also know that they're in the medical field, and I trust them because I have a heart relationship with them. It's funny that we, anything that we do here going forward as a church is based on trustworthy people and trustworthy information. That's really what Paul's talking about here, only in a gospel sense. Who do we trust? A ministry can only be trusted if it maintains integrity in relationship to the content and the progress of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be and continue to be a trustworthy ministry at grace in that regard. In Corinth, again, as we've already said, these racketeers, if you will, these hucksters, were the members of churches. They were members of the Corinthian church who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but added to his sufficient work, good works, 
In other words, it's not show your faith by your works, it's faith and works together. Jesus isn't enough. It's okay to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough to save your soul. You've got to put in some effort. See how that was slippery? Remember, these same racketeers were people that criticized the Apostle Paul for being fickle, even in his travel plans. These racketeers will be people that will criticize people that you trust, that gave you the gospel, that have shepherded you in the gospel from your life change, born-again moment forward. They will seek to criticize those people that you've entrusted your life to because they faithfully gave you the gospel. That's what these racketeers will do. They will seek to distract you in that way, among many other ways. What they tried to do was present a smokescreen of sorts, among others, to gain the attention of the Corinthian believers to distract them from the operation of the true grace of God in their lives. And Paul knew the Corinthian church had genuine converts of grace. He knew, as we studied last week by the report of Titus, that these saints had received his stern rebuke through his first letter and his second personal visit. And they responded well to it, and they continued to live it, but they had been distracted by falsehood, and so they're wavering now. Again, these racketeers were within the church, and they also traveled into Corinth from outside the city to persuade the church to embrace salvation by works. These were the Judaizers. These were religious people. These were people that were Jehovah worshipers of sorts, but they weren't satisfied with Jesus alone. These dishonest peddlers are described in chapter 4 and verse 2. Would you jump over there real quickly, real quickly with me? Let's just read that verse. Paul says here what he's done in comparison to what the racketeers do. He said, but we have renounced the hidden things of, of, because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, not in and of themselves, but what? in the sight of God. Go over with me to chapter 5 and verse 12, would you please? Chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul says here, we are not again commending ourselves to you. And this is what we'll read back in chapter 3 in a little bit, which was the habit of the hucksters. Self-commendation. We are not commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. It's a powerful preposition we'll see in our, in our uh, three verses we'll study this morning back in chapter three, relationship of the heart here. Go with me to chapter 10 now in the same book. You'll notice that throughout our whole study in 2 Corinthians that these Hucksters, these racketeers, these peddlers, these false ones were a pervasive influence in the church that had, again, distracted the Corinthian church off of gospel growth and progress. And so you'll find them and information about them, descriptions of them, uh, throughout the whole letter. 
Chapter 10 and verse number 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us, a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. These folks, these false ones, sought personal and financial gain from the church at the expense of gospel trust and integrity. Go over with me to chapter 11 now, if you will. Let's look at verses and verse 7. Paul writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? In other words, I didn't ask for any money. I wasn't doing it to get rich. Not for filthy lucre's sake, Peter would have said, is the, is the motive and the method of a shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. He goes on to say here in verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And I, this, is, this was the accusation of them. He's just kind of reporting what the false ones say about him. And he mixes their falsehood statements with his truth statements here. Right? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. Is that really how it happened? I was not a burden, but I robbed. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off Opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Now describing the false ones again, these Judaizers, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according 
to their deeds. Jump down to verse number 20 with me uh, in the same chapter. Verse number 20. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say, that we have been weak in comparison to that. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Go over to chapter 12 with me. Let's look at verse 14 to 18. Chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. I think it's appropriate to read all these texts ahead of time in order to properly explain what he's going to compare and contrast here in chapter 3 regarding truth and falsehood. Okay? He says here in verse 14, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. I seek you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with you, with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk and in the same steps? So, let's go back to chapter 3 here. After reading those descriptions of falsehood as compared to the genuineness of Paul's uh, gospel-saturated heart and motive here. And we'll let the text now uh, unfold for us the comparisons here in the next several weeks together, beginning in verses 1 through 3. So while these false ones were motivated to get their false message across, they were distracting the people of God away from gospel progress in the verses that we just read, even to the point where uh, these false ones were uh, heaping a lot of offerings to themselves. We'll find out later in chapters 8 and 9 that the, the Apostle Paul had to encourage the Corinthian believers to pick up their gospel motivation in their giving again because they had set it aside in relationship to the gift that was necessary for the Macedonian churches. And the reason why they didn't have any funds for the Macedonian churches is because they had given all their funds to the false ones who were among them and who were also coming in from out of town bearing false letters of reference. So these folks had quite an influence. So what's the best way to protect the church from these religious racketeers? Paul answers. Let's do a compare and contrast message of discerning who and what is false compared to what is genuine. So chapter 3 lays out for us the nature and practice of the false and the genuine. It's that simple. The peddlers were known as Judaizers. As we've already said, they were those who had no trouble professing Christ but they added works to the gospel. 
their message was Jesus and his, to- his atonement were good, but as I said earlier, were never enough. Works of the law of Moses had to be included. And the saints who had responded to Paul's simple, powerful, and spiritually transformational message represent those in the church who humbly trust in the sufficiency of God's grace as compared to the sufficiency of law. So the first compare and contrast that we're going to see here is in verses 1 through 3. And what I want to call this first portion of this text in chapter 3, or how I want to title it, is this. This is a comparison of the front-end messaging of both groups. What's their message? What are they trying to convey? They're speaking loudly and clearly two distinct kind of messages, but they both sound somewhat the same. So Paul's going to help us discern how to differentiate between both. Those who sound alike, but who are distinctly different, how do we differentiate between the two? So let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Paul says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So what's the messaging? What's the messaging? There was a customary practice here in this culture of those who were philosophers and those who were religious people, and sometimes even those who had a product to sell, that they would come into a town and they would bring letters of recommendation to those who they sought to be or have as an audience. It was common. And when they were done promoting or peddling whatever they had to offer, teach, or sell, upon the conclusion they would take up an offering for what they taught or after they sold their goods, they would receive income from their goods. And then when they asked the people who had heard them or bought from them to write them down a letter of reference so that they, when they went to the next city, they could pull those letters of recommendation out as well. So Paul had no problem with these letters of recommendation. As a matter of fact, he wrote them for other people. The Bible's very clear about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he wrote on Timothy's behalf. 2 Corinthians itself, really, is a letter and recommendation of sorts of the person of Titus. We've already seen that in several different passages in this small letter. Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, he commended Phoebe to the Roman people. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul reminds the Colossians that they are to receive Barnabas in whom he trusted. 
He had no problem with the letters of recommendation. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14 of the book that we're studying, Paul carried his own and would have recommended himself to them based on the reference of other people. But he had already been to Corinth for a first time. He had already brought his letters of recommendation to Corinth once. He had preached the gospel. They had seen and experienced the personal transformation uh, and the ecclesiastical change in their local church, and then the community change as the gospel went out from that church in Corinth. They had lived for a time, faithfully knowing what Holy Spirit change was. And then the false teachers come in from within, they come in from without, and they begin to peddle. They begin to preach Christ, but add works. They agitate the flock. We've already said that. They begin to criticize Paul, right, to take away his apostolic authority. And Paul's just basically saying here, does your unsettledness, does your unrest, even though you've already known the change the gospel's brought to you in Christ, are you really demanding of me now another recommendation letter when I've already given one to you on my first visit? And you've seen this life change? Don't you understand that man seeks for approval of man? But I only sought for approval from God when I gave you this message? Can't you see how it was singularly clear the first time I came to preach Christ to you? Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's look a little bit about the purity of Paul's motive here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've already alluded to this text once as we began our introduction of the book of 2 Corinthians. But Paul's saying here, look, do we really need to do this all over again? Let's remember how I was the first time I came. And when I came to you, Chapter 2 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Brethren, I did not come with the superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my messaging, right? My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So again, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you? Or do we have to have you write them for us again? This whole point was that those questions were intended to be rhetorical questions. Obviously, no, Paul. But Paul did have heartburn, so to speak over the false teachers who were constantly asking for letters of reference and the approval of men. The messaging of the peddlers of falsehood, falsehood always demands the approval of men. And please write that down or please remember that. 
The messaging of falsehood always demands. These peddlers aren't requesting it. They're not... They're not being unintentional about their message. It's premeditative. It's preplanned. And it's got a purpose to divide and to stop the true message and its progress of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did that by demanding that people listen to them and their words of wisdom that were not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, if you want to underline here in this verse the word again, there's always going to be, you see the word some. This is what falsehood does. They're perpetually intentional again and again and again. There's always going to be some and they're always going to require something of you and from you that's not gospel fruit or gospel expectation. Are you with me? Amen. They're always going to expect something from you or for you to take advantage of, a, take advantage of that has nothing to do with gospel expectation or gospel fruit. And remember this too, that the messaging of falsehood always demands an impersonal and subjective support for their message. That's important to remember as we head forward into what the messaging of truth is and what it demands. The messaging of falsehood is always impersonal and subjective. And therefore, they demand the same and the support for their message. Often, these were peddlers of falsehood that would travel about, entering cities like Corinth, as we said, demanding, based on their letters of recommendation, the attention of those in the church who would give them audience. If those who were weaker in the assembly listened to their message, then the hucksters could discredit Paul's gospel message from within by coming from without. And their messaging was always preaching to impress. It was always for personal and financial gain. It, was always, it always included some work of the law and adding it to the exclusive message of saving grace through Christ alone. These peddlers would always carry and demand letters of commendation to be read when they showed up, and they demanded those letters of approval and commendation when they would leave. And often, historians tell us, when they could not persuasively pilfer a group to which they were speaking, and when they could not get by request a letter of commendation, the hucksters would sit and forge their own false commendation from the group that would not hear them and carry it on to the next city. These were counterfeits. These were false ones. One author called them unworthy adventurers with unreliable credentials. That's the self-centered, self-promoting messaging of falsehood. Now what's Paul's messaging here? He says here in the text, you are our letter. You are our epistle written in our hearts 
known and read of all men. Paul's messaging was personal, not impersonal. He knew these people that he had preached the gospel to, and he knew them well enough to have seen divine change from within. As I said earlier, he had come once with letters of commendation and preached Christ and him crucified. Hearts were changed, lives were changed, the grace of God was evident to all who knew the Corinthians. They had seen that they had been born again. He said, they're written in our hearts. This is a letter engraved in Paul's heart, one author says, not flourished in his hand or carried in his luggage. It is something far more intimate than an external document of paper with ink, and at the same time, far more permanent. We've identified with you, he says, because you had a divine transformation of a message from a divine one, not a temporary change offered to you by a false temporary teacher. Your hearts change like ours did, Paul would say, when we first received the gospel of Christ. And I can see the Apostle Paul remembering his conversion back in Acts 9. He says here, we don't demand external praise and commendation of man because we know the supernatural transformation of God in our hearts, and you can't take that away from our experience with one another. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God knows the heart. Our message to you, he would say, was singularly supernatural, uniquely powerful, and forever personal and transformational. That's what tied our hearts together with yours when we first came to Corinth and preached Christ. We brought letters once. We don't need to bring them again, despite being discredited, because the message we brought was permanent, personal, powerful, and influential not temporary, superficial, demanding popular acceptance. He says, and you are known and your lives are read of all men. You are a living, breathing, Holy Spirit regenerated, transformed soul that has an existence. And your existence functions like every other human being created in God's image throughout the natural rhythms of life. You wake up, you walk by the way, you lie down only to get up the next day and do it all over again. But remember last week, you are that savor of life unto life or death unto death. You can't help yourself but have an influence and it's a supernatural one because it's from the gospel of Christ. Other people knew this of the Apostle Paul. Polycarp, who was an early father of the New Testament church, he was martyred in A.D. 50, 156, wrote this to the Philippians about Paul, who had preached the gospel when he came to them in Acts 16. And remember Lydia, Acts 16, there was no Jewish temple in 
Philippi because it required eight or more uh, Jewish men to have a temple. So he found Lydia with her friends down by uh, the riverside, washing clothes, having a prayer meeting. And she's born again, and then her household, and then Paul's in prison, and the churches started there in her home. Those folks had become Paul's letters, really, in Philippi, and Paul became their letter as he went on to Thessalonica from prison in Philippi and preached the gospel there in Acts 17, right? Polycarp says this of Paul, among whom the bless Paul labored, and the Philippian people, who were his letters in the beginning. This was common language. This was common language that went on in the uh, first century and on into the second century of the church. There were letters of commendation from falsehood or true spiritual letters of transformation lived out in the way saints existed in their natural rhythms of life. Where Paul had preached Christ exclusively and where Paul had been personal eyewitness to the life change brought about by the Spirit of God is where Paul's heart was. His heart was forever knit with souls who had been changed by the gospel and their lives were personal and public demonstrations of the same. The grace of God accompanies the life of a true believer everywhere he or she goes and whatever he or she does. The messaging of Paul is simple yet profound. God's grace alone demonstrates itself in a changed life. And then that life becomes a letter of Jesus Christ not of Paul, because it's Christ's message. This grace is beautiful. It's the unique aroma of God to those alive in Christ and equally the stench of God to those who are perishing. You always carry with you a spiritual scent, my friends, in every place. Meditate on that. Your life change is your letter of recommendation. Why? It's got to be an ultimate why as we close this morning. It's found right here. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Two metaphors he's going to give here to close out verse 3. Here's the first one. Ink, paper, versus the spirit, and tablets of stone, compared to tablets on human hearts. The word manifested here means to cause to become visible. This is something that's very intentional. As a matter of fact, I believe the language here teaches that this is... It's, some, it's, it's an involuntary thing. When you're governed by the Spirit of God, this messaging is involuntary. There's no one here, I would believe, that has thought about taking your next breath since I started preaching. No one here is willing their heart to beat again. There are involuntary biological things that our body just enjoys because of the way God's created us. 
when you're governed by the Spirit of God, right? You walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5. So when you're governed by the Spirit, this is just what you do. This is the messaging that you live. It's not perfectionism. It's an imperfect Reality only enjoying the perfection of Christ in our hearts by justification, but always progressing in Christ's likeness. And you are intentionally making this become visible. But who's being manifested? Christ. You are, you are the letter of Christ. Pull him out of the back pocket and live him. What's your motive for being who you are? Oh, Mr. Joyful, Mrs. Happy, Mrs. Everyone doesn't seem that anything's wrong in this world, even though the world's falling apart? What's your proof of why you are what you are? What's in this for you? What are you trying to get from me? Eat just Jesus. <laughs> if I had a $100 bill for every time, I'm not a huckster, I'm not asking for money, but if I had a $100 bill for every time I've used that phrase during this crisis, why are you happy? Why are you, why are you acting like nothing's going on? What's in this for you? What's your motive with me? Did Jesus. Amen. Jesus transforms the way you live. Positionally, dispositionally, personally. We are Christ's letter, which means we are living Christ's life. Amen. That's as loud as I'll get this morning. <laughs> Folks, think about the context we're in right now in our country. Think about the radical, divine, supernatural, distinct life of Christ that becomes that city that's unavoidable visually you are manifested before men as Christ's letter because of transformational grace on the heart what a great opportunity we have here and Paul's telling these people get undistracted by the hucksters look at what opportunity you have by grace and be that saver of life on the life He says here, you're cared for by us. Never, please never underestimate the interdependent, necessary reality of Christian fellowship and care for one another in God's word. They are Christ's letter being cared for by you as under-shepherds. And he says, this letter of Christ that you are was not written with ink on parchment. There's no human hand here grabbing a quill and a parchment to write out a commendation for you. This is an invisible, supernatural miracle of God's grace upon the human heart brought about by the Holy Spirit of God and his omnipotence. When you hear the gospel, 
One author said, the medium of writing is not perishable ink, but divine spirit. The presence of the eternal age of Christ's kingdom is discernible. Even amid the shadows of our fallen and temporal world, in the, re, in the redeeming and sanctifying operation of the sovereign spirit of God, whose writing is dynamic and it's permanent. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is simply saying here that the change for the Corinthians was not external to them, but internal to them. He uses the giving of the law of God to Moses as God engraved on stone the moral code of expectations that God had upon the human soul. And he uses this metaphor to remind the Corinthian believers that it was not the law that could save. Right? No standard ever saved anybody. But it was the law of God, as he explains in, in Galatians, that became our schoolmaster. He knew in our broken humanity that we could not perfectly obey the moral code engraved on stone by the finger of God. But that moral code was necessary to reveal to us our imperfection so that we would know and experience the divine inward change that only the Holy Spirit of God could bring. That is the glorious messaging of the gospel. Two distinct messages. One of human expectation and one of divine expectation. And my friends, it is a sad thing when a person measures his worth by what people say about him instead of what God knows about him. What does God know about you are you a letter of Christ made manifest to all men in every place? When people think of you, are you messaging Christ and his beauty and his glory and his joy? The reality of who he is. Or do we seek the approval of men? Well, we seek to remain comparing ourselves in light of ourselves, making fools of ourselves at the same time. Let's stop looking around and let's look up. Amen. Let's look up and be that letter of Christ. Okay? Love y'all. By the way, I think our flock's doing a great job at messaging well the life of Christ. It's imperfect, I understand that. But it's divinely supported by omnipotence Keep growing. Keep growing. And keep asking yourself that question all week long. Who am I messaging? Am I messaging myself and my brokenness, or am I messaging Jesus Christ and his completeness? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for this precious exploration of these three short verses uh, so full of divine truth and opportunity for us as your people continue to go with us lord as a church we ask for your spiritual and physical protection and i pray lord that we continue to be those letters of christ that in all times in our existence in our country need to be read of men in every place
May they see him in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.